So this morning, we are at the well of Samaria at Sichar. Have you been there? Maybe in your mind. But if you ever go to visit uh, the land of Israel, you will know that it's a very hot and dry climate. And Jesus Christ uh, was traveling through Samaria and he was weary and thirsty and he sends his disciples off to the nearest town to buy food and he rests by this well and this woman comes we don't know her name we just call her the woman of Samaria and he strikes up a conversation with her he is not having a gospel conversation he's just talking naturally to begin with but in this conversation, he brings in the gospel. So we have this wonderful encounter between this woman and Jesus Christ. And we're spending some weeks listening in to the conversation. Because it's one of the greatest conversations ever. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? That's what we're trying to do. And we left off Jesus having just presented the gospel in a very natural way. He talked about water, <laughs> which is what the well is all about. And he said to the woman, whoever drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I'm offering will never thirst. And that's the gospel. The gospel is living spiritual water do you have a thirst an ache inside of you for something you know that all the world has to offer can never satisfy that longing jesus christ says i am the one there's a god-shaped hole inside of us and only jesus christ can fill it so he's just presented the gospel what happens next what would you and i have done we would have said to this woman come come and drink wouldn't we we want people to believe if you're not a believer this morning i want you to leave this meeting having come to jesus christ not just come to church but having drunk of jesus christ but Jesus doesn't do that. So we'll take up the accounts. This is all we're going to look at this morning. John chapter 4. What does Jesus say? The woman says, verse 15, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Wonderful. But notice what Jesus says next. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here and the woman answered and said i have no husband jesus said to her you have well said i have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband in that you spoke truly there's something very relevant isn't there about what jesus is saying to our society and the woman said to him sir i perceived that you are a prophet and then she goes off on a tangent wanting to have a religious conversation 
we're not about religious conversations, right? <laughs> There's a difference between a religious discussion and talking about Jesus Christ and the need of the soul. So the one thing we're going to look at this morning is what Jesus says to this woman, what he does to this woman. Do you know what it's called? Conviction of sin. Have you ever heard of conviction of sin? I'm sure you have. What Jesus does is convince this woman that she's a sinner. And what I want the Lord to do this morning is to convince every one of us, myself included, that by nature we are sinners. So let's look first at conviction. Uh, incidentally, uh, you can't uh, put every conversion in the same category. Uh, God doesn't treat us like robots. Uh, those of you who are saved here this morning, if you were asked, as Alistair tends to ask people, to give their testimonies in the after meeting, everyone will have a different story to tell. God saves us all in different ways. So with this woman, Jesus has presented the gospel, and then there's conviction of sin. In other cases, Saul of Tarsus, he's convicted of sin first, before he hears the gospel. So we can't pigeonhole uh, every conversion. So let's look at conviction first, and then we'll look at conversion. So two points. Conviction. How does the Lord convict us of sin? Well, we said, didn't we? We sang, well, I said, and I sang, you sang, I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin. There's a mystery here. I can't convict you of sin. It's the Holy Spirit's. And there's a mystery. But the Holy Spirit is a person. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Godhead. The Father is the first person. The Holy Spirit is the third person. Three persons, one God. And God doesn't change. So there are certain characteristics in how the Spirit convicts us of sin, even though there's a mystery. Can you understand that? So the first thing I want to say is this. He will use different things. Every conversion is unique, and God the Spirit will use all sorts of things to convict us of sin. In the case of this woman, it was a conversation. Has that happened to you? You have had a conversation with a person. Maybe you were not a Christian. Uh, I can see students here this morning. I am so glad that you're here it was when I was a student that I was saved. And I was in a hall of residence. I still think it's there. Pantakellin, named after the hymn writer. And I can remember now at mealtimes, a Christian coming up to me and talking to me about Jesus Christ. I wasn't convicted of sin. I said to her, are you trying to convert me? <laughs> 
But God can use conversations to prick somebody's conscience. What else? Uh, Saul of Tarsus saw a blinding light. And he falls down to his knees. Not many people have such a Damascus Road experience, but it can happen, can't it? I know many of you here, in a sermon, you have suddenly been stopped in your tracks. It was in a sermon that I was convicted of sin. I went into the meeting in the Welsh Christian Union thinking that I was all right. I was a boy brought up to go to chapel. I read my little New Testaments. I said my prayers. I didn't get drunk. I didn't do any outrageous things. I was all right. But then I went into that meeting and all the preacher did was preach on Ecclesiastes. And I know that by the time I left the meeting, I was a sinner and I needed to be saved. So it often happens in a sermon and my longing is that some soul here this morning will be convicted of sin. But it can happen in other ways as well. I've heard of one person who was convicted of sin when he was drunk. Don't ask me how. But the Spirit can do it. He was in the back of a bus and they were all drunk. But the Holy Spirit took hold of that person and showed him his need of a saviour. In Philippi, uh, 2,000 years ago, it was an earthquake, wasn't it? A catastrophic event that caused the Philippian jailer, a hardened Roman soldier, to be convicted of sin. And often people during tragedies will be brought face to face with their great need. So I could go on, but conviction of sin comes in all sorts of different ways. Second thing, it's the Holy Spirit who's convicting of sin. There is no torment with the workings of God the Spirit. What do I mean by torment? The devil torments. Has anybody here had a satanic attack? There's an oppression. There's a torment in it. Judas Iscariot was tormented, wasn't he? After he realized that he'd betrayed the Son of God and that led to him killing himself. That's not the same as the work of the spirits. When a person is tormented, they're going in on themselves. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. There's no torment. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, they would accuse people. They never thought about their own sins, interestingly. They were preoccupied with the sins of others. And they would be forever pointing their finger at other people. That is not what the Spirit does. People were repelled, weren't they, by the religious leaders, but they were drawn to Jesus Christ, even if they were convicted of sin. Can you understand that? Peter, Simon Peter, was drawn to him, and yet, what did he say the first time he met him? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So there's no torment. If you get tormented, I would say it's... Not the Holy Spirit. Yet, the third thing I need to say, and this is important, he is the Holy Spirit. So there is conviction. (laughs) 
It doesn't happen in the same way. But he pricks the conscience. What did Jeremiah say? We looked at this when we were in Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things. Do you know what that means in the original? It means it has many folds. The intricacies of deception. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit exposes the hearts. You can't hide anything from God. You may try to cover up sin in all sorts of ways. You may use all sorts of uh, clever, sneaky ways. But the Holy Spirit removes that. And so Jesus here, he gets straight to the point. It's an innocent comment, isn't it? Go call your husband. And immediately, her heart is penetrated by God, the Holy Spirit. Jesus has touched the points of need in that woman's life. Oh, for sermons that penetrate. I, I don't think our sermons are penetrating. We're hardly getting beyond the surface. And of course, in our society today, where there's so much confusion on sexual immorality, I can well imagine a person being convicted in the same area as this woman. She, she, she was an adulteress. She'd had five husbands, and even the one she had now wasn't her husband. What a mess. And yet, how contemporary. But you know what? And this is my point. When the Holy Spirit convicts, it's not just that sin. And we're obsessed, aren't we, about sexual immorality. But there are all sorts of sins. The Pharisees that I've mentioned, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they... Uh, were even worse in one sense. Jesus spoke much more uh, harsh towards the Pharisees. And it's interesting what this woman does. As soon as she's made to feel uncomfortable, do you know what she starts doing? She starts to deflect Jesus and starts having a religious discussion on worship. Haven't you done that sometimes? Somebody starts talking about your soul. And then you don't want to talk about such things. It's too uncomfortable. So you'd rather talk about some religious uh, hot potato. Much easier, isn't it? Much easier. Uh, the Pharisees, they had many folds covering their unbelief. Uh, they, they would uh, just cover the Bible and its plain teaching with their traditions. So instead of looking after their parents, they would just say, if you say Corban a gift, it's all right. But Jesus says, you annul the word of God with your traditions. When the Holy Spirit comes, that penetration doesn't just go through the immorality of a godless society. It cuts through the immorality of religious people, the respectable sins the Holy Spirit doesn't tolerate. Let me give you some examples. I read Psalm 51. Who wrote that psalm? David. 
Who was David? The man after God's own heart. When David penned Psalm 51, he was a believer. But he'd backslidden. We know the story, don't we? He had uh, not gone to war, and he was uh, wasting his time, probably, and he saw Bathsheba on the roof, and he lusted after her, and he slept with her. So that was one commandment he broke. And then, because he was the king, he tried to cover it up. What did he do? He called her husband Uriah back from the front. And he was very sneaky, wasn't he? Trying to get her to sleep with her so that people would think that the child that would be born would have been conceived from that. And then he sent Uriah back. And he puts him in the most dangerous part of the battle so that he would be killed. David thought it was all right. And for months, David was comfortable in himself. He thought nobody's seen this. But God had. God had. And Nathan the prophet was sent to David. And we know what Nathan said. It's better in the authorised version, isn't it? Thou art the man. Thou is singular. The Holy Spirit, when he penetrates our hearts, he, he's talking to you. He's talking to me. He's, he's, we're experts at other people's sins. <laughs> if we were so concerned about our own sin, I think we'd be on the way to revival. Let me give you another example. Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was a very respectable man. He was an extremely religious man. He said in one letter that as to the righteousness which is of the law, blameless, on paper, blameless. And yet, when he was convicted of sin, what did the Holy Spirit put his finger on? It was the command, the last one, thou shalt not covet. And Paul realized, even though I haven't slept with anybody and been unfaithful, even though I haven't murdered anybody, even though I haven't done this or that, in my heart I've covered it. And you know what Paul said, writing in another letter? He always writes about himself, you know. I was alive without the law once. I was religious, and I thought I was the bee's knees. I sat at Gamaliel's feet, and I was going to be the next great teacher in Israel. I was the one who had gone beyond anybody else in terms of morality and religiosity. I was alive. You can imagine him, can't you? Talking theology. You can imagine him going to one conference after another. This is the man. Alive. And then the commandments came. The penetration of the Holy Spirit. And he died. It was all over. Have you died? Have you died? When he has come, the spirits, Jesus said, he will reprove the world of sin. And you know what that sin is? Because they believe not in me. Well, if... Saul of Tarsus, if David, as a believer, were convicted of sin, you and I need to be convicted, don't we? I'm so glad to be in a church that prays for revival. We are desperate for revival. But I'm convinced if God was to pour out his spirit, it would be us who would be first convicted of sin. 
Can you say this morning, I know if you're in Jesus Christ, you are a saved sinner. I know that. Praise God. But can you say, in the words of Thomas William, we sang, I'm coming as a sinner. I have no other name. Who cares for labels? I'm a poor, needy, hell-deserving sinner. Do you know what Luther said? I like Luther. Don't you like Luther? I have no other name than sinner. Sinner is my first name. Sinner is my surname. Do you know, I've got three names. Wynn isn't my first name. It's a pain when you have to uh, fill in forms. I'm Alan Wynn Hughes. It must be something to do with being the pastor of this church. W.V.H. My predecessor. But it doesn't matter how many names you've got. Sometimes when overseas students come over here, they change their names. That's fine. But all of us here are sinners. First name, middle name, last name. So conviction of sin. I've spent too long on it, but it's important. Let's very quickly look at the second point. Conversion, conversion. This is what conviction leads to, right? Conviction leads to conversion. Why? Well, the first thing conviction does is show us we need a saviour. We need a saviour. Uh, if you've never read J.C. Ryle on the Gospels, get them and read them and then read them again and then read them again. This is how J.C. Ryle put it. Those heart-searching words, go call thy husband, appear to have pierced her conscience like an arrow till a sinner sees themselves as God sees them. They will continue careless and unmoved. Never does a soul value the gospel medicine until it feels its disease. Never does one see any beauty in Christ as saviour till they see themselves as lost, ruined sinners. It's like me when I was jogging, having been stung, a dock leaf, that's all I wanted. A dock leaf. Have you come to the place where you're not excusing yourself? It's only a little one. It's not. Sin is rebellion against God. James, a very practical man, the epistle of James, very practical. What does he say? Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet fall in one point is guilty. Of all, how can I get it into our minds and hearts that it doesn't matter if we think we're all right in other areas. If we've broken one of God's commands, we are guilty of all. But actually, we've broken them all because God looks upon the heart. The Apostle John, uh, maybe somebody is saying, Pastor, why can't you be like the Apostle John, the Apostle of love? Very well, let's quote the Apostle John. If we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. What about Paul after he was converted now? Not before, after he was converted. Are we better than they? Are we Heath Church better than those people who are breaking the fourth command by running the half marathon today? 
Are we, Heath Church, better than the people who are getting drunk on St. Mary's streets? Do you think you're better in yourself than a person who is your neighbor, your workmate? God forbid, may it never be. There is none righteous. No, not one. So, God convicts us of sin in order to make us realize our need of Jesus Christ. This is where we must be careful. Not everybody has the same extent of conviction. What did Joseph Hart say? And he knew a thing or two about experience. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. My friend, are you feeling your need of a saviour this morning? I'm not asking you how much conviction have you had. Some of you may have really gone down into the slough of despond. Others may not have had that experience. But do you feel your need? Do I feel my need? Come, come. Then the second reason why we're convicted in terms of conversion is to humble us, to humble us. This woman has a long conversation, doesn't she, with the Lord Jesus Christ, but immediately after she's convicted, all she says is, I have no husband. That's, <laughs> that's the shortest thing she says, because she's been humbled. Her mouth has been stopped. Uh, the Apostle Paul, again in Romans, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to them who are under the, not the law of the land now, not the 20 miles an hour speed limits. This is the law of God, the Ten Commandments, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. You put yourself before the mirror of God's law. Yes, if we compare ourselves to those who are not Christians, we can feel good about ourselves. But God looks upon the heart, my friend. And if you put yourself before the mirror of God's law, it's not like some of the mirrors they have in the department stores. Uh, if you go into the changing room and look at yourself in the mirror, you look better than you are because they've got a tint in the mirror. But the mirror of God's law isn't like that. It says it as it is. And if you stand before the holy Mirror of God's law, you will see yourself as a sinner in need of a saviour. And you will be completely silenced. Isn't most trouble in churches due to people not being humbled? That there's too much talk, too much chattering. When God convicts, we put our hand over our mouths, we're humble humbled but then and this is what I'm going to end on this is the most important thing I'm going to say this morning the purpose of conviction is to convert us to bring us to Christ I had to get up early this morning because the roads were shut to get across the city I needed to take a long detour so my alarm was set earlier none of us like waking up do we it's like that. That's what conviction of sin is like. It's healthy. It's being woken up spiritually. But listen, being woken up isn't the same as getting out of bed. <laughs> that's why some people put their alarm clocks on the other side of the room. Conversion. What does conversion mean? Conversion is getting out of bed. 
It's getting out, out of my bondage, uh, sorrow and sin, Jesus, I come. The Lord will convict you as much as you need to come to Jesus Christ. That's what we want. Conviction of sin doesn't save anybody. It's turning to Christ that saves. And so, whatever God uses to convict of sin, at whatever point it happens, whatever the degree of conviction, it always brings us to Christ. Boanerges, the son of thunder, think of William's Theomemphis, leads to Evangelius, the gospel preacher. David, convicted of sin, he didn't stay in the depths, did he? He repented, he turned, he confessed his sin, he reaffirmed his complete trust in the Lord who cleanses from sin. And he penned one of the most sublimest of Psalms, Psalm 51. We wouldn't have had Psalm 51 if David hadn't been convicted of sin. Saul of Tarsus, when he was convicted outside the gates of Damascus, blinded by the light, he didn't stay outside the gates of Damascus. Praise God, he didn't. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had the gospel come to Europe. The Apostle Paul was converted. He had his eyes opened. And what a conversion that was because he spent the rest of his life preaching Christ. And he couldn't get over the fact that God had loved him. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me has been made known. Every true believer can say that. The Apostle Paul writing towards the end of his life. It was the same sense of amazement. It is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world. Not just to save sinners, but to save me, the chief of sinners. The Apostle Paul, even after being mightily used of God and writing the greatest letters in the whole canon of Scripture, was still a humble, sin-aware saints. I like the way he put it to the Galatians when there was that controversy. Who likes controversy? It's horrible, isn't it, having to deal with controversy? But Paul, in the middle of a polemic, says he loved it. Do you know what he said? He loved it. Me. And gave himself for me. I think the great Apostle Paul was like a little boy when he came to the gospel. He loved me. <laughs> and he gave himself for me. So when the Apostle Paul went around the then civilized world preaching Christ, he wasn't kind of looking down upon other people. He was seeing people that were as bad as himself. And he knew if God had saved him, he could save them. It was his beating hearts. It's what made him tick. What makes you tick? A good theological argument? Or having this burden for lost souls that they may experience the same thing? as we have. This is what this church is about. I like the way that the student lunch is advertised. Come as you are. It's all been provided. You don't have to pay. You don't have to bring anything but yourself. 
my friends, we've got an even better banquet on offer. Even if you can't come to the student lunch, you can come to Jesus Christ. It's all been provided. Jesus Christ, by his perfect life, by his death on the cross, I haven't got time to come to the cross this morning. I'm preaching on the verses in front of us. But on the cross, I can't help but mention it. Jesus Christ took this woman's sins. All of her adulteries were put on him. He took the punishment and all the rest of her sins and your sins and mine. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good. We're not good by nature so that we at last may go to heaven saved, not because of our merits, but through his precious blood. Uh, convict us of our sin, then lead to Jesus' blood, and to our wandering view, reveal the secret love of God. It's amazing, isn't it, the love of Christ? It's amazing. God commends his love toward us, not that we deserve it, but while we were still wallowing in sin, Christ died for us, ungodly enemies weak. Well, my time is running out. I was in a coffee shop yesterday. I've never had this happen to me before in a coffee shop. It was before closing time, and one of the women working there came with a tray full of pastries, and she was offering them for free. Have you ever had that happen? I shouldn't have bought the croissants before. <laughs> <laughs> She had this tray, and there were these wonderful pastries, and I could take one for free. I've got a tray here this morning. Andy, Nathan, and visiting preachers, they've had trays of spiritual treats. And Jesus says, come and eat. Come and drink of me. I don't want anybody... I know there are people here this morning who are going to be worried that they haven't had enough conviction of sin and that they can't believe in Jesus Christ. If you're worried about that, you realize that you need Christ, and I just want to encourage you to come to him. There are others here who probably think they're all right, but you need to be convicted of sin, and I can't do it. I, I can't force this. That would be aggression. The Spirit must do it. May he use my words. Can I close with this? I... I did pre I wasn't supposed to preach during my sabbatical, but I did preach once in Treg have you been to Tregaron? It's in the middle of nowhere. Really in the middle of nowhere. It was only a handful of people. I wanted to see if I could still preach. And if you go to Tregaron, there's a place on the way called Llangaitho. That's even more out in the sticks, right? Llangaitho. And you'll see a statue in Llangaitho. And the look on the man's face is seraphic. Daniel Rowland was his name. And believe it or not, 200-odd years ago, if you would have gone to Llangaitho, it's fields today, little village and fields, sheep. You wouldn't have had sheep there. You would have had thousands and thousands of lost sheep people. They were traveling all over Wales because God was using Daniel Rowland. And do you know what Daniel Rowland was doing when he started preaching? He was a son of thunder, born Argus. He was preaching the law. People were being convicted of sin. People were going mad because they didn't know what to do. And there was an experienced minister there. Have I got his name right? Philip Pugh. Uh, and he said to Daniel, he got him 
on his side and he said, Daniel Bach, as we say in Welsh, Daniel, Daniel, you've got to preach the gospel as well. You've got to show them the balm of Gilead. They're wounded. You've got to show them the dock leaf. And you know what Daniel Rowland said? Daniel said, if I'd experienced the gospel myself, I would. And then Philip Hughes said wonderful words. Daniel, preach the gospel until you feel it. And then you will preach it because you feel it. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say we can't get enough gospel. <laughs> I've preached on conviction, but I don't want to leave you there. I want you to come to that cross. And if you're already a believer, I want you to come again and stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. And you know what? People looking at us then won't see a group of holier-than-thou finger-pointing evangelicals. They'll see people who've got something and they haven't got it. And they'll want to know for his name's sake. Amen. Uh, let's sing to close. Have I got the right hymn? Yes. Come, you sinners, ye sinners, Sing whatever you prefer, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is willing. Come, sinner, doubt no more. And so on. 474 if you've got the hymn book.
Father, may that be our motto, none but Jesus. And may we know uh, that uh, work of the Holy Spirit in our own hearts. And now may the grace, amazing grace of Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forever. Amen.